Right, welcome back to my podcast, Stephen Sully Study. I want to say this. I was told once, or I watched a program once, where I heard a really good saying or philosophy, which is you come into life with nothing and you go out of life with nothing. So everything in between is borrowed. But one thing that's going to last forever is conversations like this. And I'm really privileged and honoured to have you on, on the podcast for this week, Kevin. So Kevin Lane, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And I'm really looking forward to this episode. Thank you, thank you very much. So Kevin, where shall I start? I mean, look, you've got a, a really interesting background. Um, there's obviously been some controversial things in the media and you've got some really positive things happening, such as your book here, Fitted Up and Fighting Back. Before we talk about that, though... Um, the media you've had a bit of an interesting time with them and obviously an interesting interesting past so tell me what's happened in the last few years uh, so uh, last few years how far do you want to go back last few current years yeah I mean look if we if we if we just hit it head first I mean I was looking at different articles on on, uh, on the internet last night, and the Guardian in uh, January, the tenth of January, two thousand twenty-one, went into this massive article about you, and they called you inverted commas a hitman. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you point blank. I mean, is 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 hitman a, a correct title? Is it something they've just done it for a bit of clickbait? No. So I was arrested for contract killing in nineteen ninety-five, and the papers at the time contract killing it wasn't as prevalent as it is now. I mean, you're getting kids shooting people for a couple of hundred quid, Operation Trident, young kids, you know, it's ridiculous now. But when I got arrested, and I'm not highlighting it in terms of glorifying, glorifying it, yeah. it, but the newspapers, I think it was Independent, they had a list of top 10 contractors in the country. That would be people who have been convicted, obviously. And they had me at number one, of £100,000 a hit a year, a, a person, and... They called me the uh, the executioner, uh, Mr. Particular. Um, what one did you just say? Hitman. Hitman, yeah. But the, normally it's the con uh, the ex the uh, Mr. Particular and obviously the executioner. But they they look papers just label you crap, don't they? They do, they do. Yeah, I mean, look, there's there's always the narrative and then there's always the truth, and the papers tend to lean on the side of the narrative and whatever's good clickbait. Uh, good you know a good clip bait bait article or, or title um i was reading for a, a few things right because i started getting slightly confused about there was one particular murder which you're, you're more highlighted for and then, then there's another one so i wanted you to shed a bit of light on that but the one that you got convicted for back in 1996 was it yeah was the uh robert uh, mcgill case oh no 1994 i got written down here and then you got a life sentence for that so um i wanted to talk about that that, that sort of moment in time. Um, I read in the article that you were walking your dog and two guys e executed this guy called Robert McGill. No, so uh, you've, you've good, good research there, Stephen, but, but the facts are a little bit uh, incorrect. So Robert McGill was executed in Rickmansworth whilst he was walking his dog, you know, okay. Rama. Two gentlemen, men, executed him for the left the woods, uh, met him, executed him, and they made their escape good. Um, two gentlemen were put forward for committing that murder. Twenty-odd people named them. Uh, one Because one was showing off a gun in a pub. One was um, bragging that they did the murder and called themselves Ronnie and Reggie. They came into some money at the time. They gave the car to a gentleman to burn. And uh, so on and so forth. So they were arrested as a result. 
but they were arrested by their police handler from another case formerly than this one. As a result of that, they then built a case and fitted me up. So uh, I, I wasn't aware at the time what I was being lured into. So three months, I got arrested on January the 10th. The murder was October the 13th. Um, I was arrested and released. But my fingerprints were taken twice. There's a number of irregularities, which is all in the book. And there's been no objections to what I say in the book about my fingerprints being taken and the procedures that were broken and so on and so forth. And I was released, but they took my prints twice whilst I was in the police station. Never had my prints compared whilst I was in the police station and released me. On a murder investigation, that should have been the first thing they should have done to be able to put questions to me during an interview. And you can match fingerprints in no time at all when you're in the police station for three days. So I was released... The bag was then taken to be uh, fingerprinted for a second time by two separate fingerprint experts than the very first. And they found my print on the bag. As a result of that, I was arrested and charged with murder. Um, Vincent and Smith were the original suspects. They was in, were engaging in confidential chats and discussing deals with the police and giving information about the murder and other murders. Now, what I say is, is is not fanciful conversation. I'm not a fantasist. This is factual. I have custody records where signatures have signed asking to speak to the police on a confidential basis. I have the uh, confidential chats that were disclosed at the Old Bailey Court too at uh, a hearing that I wasn't pretty as an ex parte hearing. So Roger Vincent was party to that. I wasn't, but Vincent was being kept in different prisons up and down the country, having police visits, which I've got all of this documented, all of it, and so much more. Mm. So I was arrested in 95, released, and then re-arrested again 14 days later when they matched my print on a bag that had three months and had run that bag for all the national home computer case, uh, fingerprint uh, 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 departments. No match to me. And then they found my print. I was re-arrested and charged with murder. But by that time, they'd built a case around me. I wasn't arrested to the, to the facts of the case. They made a case around me. And it took me years and years and years to finally get free. Because I would never would have been released. I was given natural life in 2010 and said, you will never be released. You will remain in prison indefinitely unless you start doing the offender behaviour courses or admit your guilt. Well, I'm, a, I'm an appellant, so I'm never going to admit my guilt. Well, I shouldn't be here in the first place. Um, all through those my 20 years in prison, I never had a TV. And I used to work on my case nonstop. And the staff used to say, you just don't stop, Kevin, do you? And I had my own prison censor to handle my mail coming in and out of the prison. So I was nicknamed Mr. Shawshank, UK's Mr. Shawshank. And then as I was investigating and police officers were coming forward to the BBC... Uh, Sally Chidzoid, journalist for the BBC at the time, did absolutely phenomenal things for my case, where police officers said he's innocent. Spackman's told me he's had to write a statement out, naming Lane for the murder, that Smith signed, and he had to think cleverly about how he, re how he used the wording and such. And these statements were put in under what's called public immunity interest to the judge. So you've got Vincent saying I committed the murder, who was the original suspect. His co-defendant, Smith making statements and being put before the judge and so on and so forth. So I was doomed from day one. I go into Belmarsh Special Secure Unit, I was upgraded to high risk, and I'm put on the spur of Kenny Collins, a Hatton Garden burglar. Kenny Collins had uh, Ralph Himes solicitor who used to represent the craze, but Roger Vincent also had Ralph Himes. Roger Vincent used to write letters to Roger Craig, he said he wants to be like him. 
So you get the you get the the gist here. So Ralph had visited Kenny on on a, in the unit, and Kenny was told by Ralph Himes that the deal had been done, that Vincent was getting out halfway by the judge's direction, and I was going away. Smith, the charge was dropped against Smith. He was let go, and that's exactly what happened. Vincent, the trial was stopped halfway, and the judge acquitted Vincent by his direction because he said it was too close a proximity to allow whether or not Vincent was seen at work 20 minutes before 10 or 20 minutes after. That's ridiculous. It should have been put for the jury, let them to decide a number of other factors against this case. So um, I was then subsequently found guilty. Vincent was acquitted. Vincent was then found guilty of another murder with Smith again, another contract killing. And they're now in prison, flying through the system, I must say. And people who've got any understanding of the prison system will know if you're at the top there in terms of security, it takes you a long time to come through that system. He had 30 years and Smith had 25 years. They got five years off on appeal when Smith got three years off, respectively. And now they're doing 25 and 22. Vincent and Smith are both in CCAT prisons getting, uh, I believe Smith's getting town visits escorted. If he's getting that justified, then fair play to him. But they've got it exceedingly early. Um, people are asking a lot of questions because a lot of people are still stuck in the prison system who are getting sod all. There have never been anything other than they're serving a long sentence. So that's my story. I got, in 2011, some paperwork came to light that was sent to my solicitor and it came out of the police files. It caused a massive, massive disruption because they're saying we've had him, we've persecuted him, we've had him at triple category A, he's been in the special secure units, he's been in the unit in Whitemore uh, after the escape where the IOA escaped out of there in 1994 with an armed escape. So security was heightened, there was, it was massive, massive uh, implementations that were put in into uh, place after the escape. And of course they're saying, what have we done to him? So if this is what we believe, a grave miscarriage of justice, they chucked me out of the system. And I was gone with a blink of an eye, through the system and then released. It's a crazy story. Crazy, and the, 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 I've, I've kept that pretty minimal in terms of going into graphic details, but the book, as I've been told by many documentary makers and producers and films, is an excellent skeleton for a film or, or a documentary. And some people, I was looking at some reviews the other day, I was reading 10 reviews, and out of those 10, three of them said I've had to read the book for a second time, it's unbelievable. I can't wait to read it, and thank you, I'm very honoured that you signed the copy for me, so I really appreciate it, and I'll report back, as soon as, as, soon as I read it, I'll come back to you and tell you, tell you my view. What this conversation reminds me of, what your story reminds me of, is actually a podcast guest that I've had on recently. Now, it's, it's, it's different, but some of the principles are the same. Gakugian Power. Now, his dad, if you look him up on the internet, he was murdered um, over in India. And the killers, uh, Gian knows who the killers are. They're basically former uh, business partners of his dad's and also uh, former girlfriend, etc. And part of the reason why he thinks they killed him is to take his money and launder off the money, etc. and take his assets. The killers today are still walking around. They killed him in um, in India. They flew back the body. The body turns out not to be his dad's body. They don't know where it is still today. So got the wrong body back to the UK. But there's a loophole. If there is capital punishment, execution, 
in certain countries and you go to somewhere like the UK where there's the Human Rights Act, they will not fly you back to be that's tried right. yeah, uh, just in case, you're, uh, in case you're executed. And to live in that scenario in 2022, in, in my mind, is freaking barbaric. It's like mental because he's confronted the killers but they're still walking around. They've got completely normal lives and they've got away with, with murder. And the reason why I say is quite similar is because we feel that this country, there's so many good things about this country. I'm not one of these people to moan about it. I actually think this is one of the, the, the most uh, target-rich environments that you can live in to become a successful individual. You can get fit, you can get strong, you've got good people around you. It's a very stable country, X, Y, Z. But when we talk about the law system sometimes it's 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 got a lot of holes in it and how certain things can go wrong or escape or it's just really really crazy to think so going back to your scenario like you you strike me as someone's got your your emotions intact you're very headstrong you're switched on and you're focused but even the best of us you know even even boxers that get into the ring sometimes have an element of a little bit of fear because they know some some mad stuff is about to happen how did you feel when you so, so looked down the barrel of the gun almost and thought, I'm completely innocent now, but I've on, been on two two trials where I had both majority verdicts of murdering someone that I didn't murder. I mean, how did that make you feel at the time? Well, first of all, I have looked down the barrel of a gun before and I have been shot. Um, when, they, well, when they fell and pulled a gun out on me, I didn't know him. Uh, I won't go into those details because he's going off the track again, but I remained exceedingly calm. My two friends beside me... <laughs> They sprinted off like Limford Christie or Usain Bolt and whoever. Uh, and I asked the fellow what he was going to do with a gun. He said, I'm going to shoot. I said, we're going then. He bloody shot me. So not the best negotiating skills I've ever used. <laughs> where where did you get shot? In the head. Got, really? I've got six, seven bits of lead still in my head. goes in my skull. So they went into my, I've ducked and they've gone into my head, uh, scraping through it. And there's just loads of uh, shot in my head. But that grows out with your skin because you've got half an inch of skin on your head. But the seven in my skull, I got arrested at home by gunpoint. I'd been shot. I didn't go to the police. And they were trying to took me to hospital. And uh, by armed police, I was arrested, by the way. <laughs> Strange. Uh, and they were trying to pull the, the, some of the lead out of my skull with, with like little tweezers in my head. Um, when was that, Kevin? Uh, 91. Uh, yeah, and and how, how old were you then? Well, it's 91, I'm six, born in 60, I tell you when I was born. <laughs> <laughs> I was a young man, right? You're in your 60s, you say? No, I'm no, late, late, eh? You're, you're, 50, you're 54, aren't 54. you? 54. Yeah. Um, and I got shot. Uh, so, but when I got convicted, in answer to your question, it shook me because I knew that I was going to get guilty based on the way the evidence was going. I knew the police were lying. It stunk from the beginning. They were lying in the box. They were telling the jury that I've gripped a gun in the bag and that gun was a Mossberg pump action and the deceased was killed from Mossberg pump action. So since then, Panorama have done a programme. said absolute rubbish. They should never have been able to say that. And I've got an appeal point going up now in relation to my conviction, hopefully squashed that and a number of other factors. But because of the lead up to the, the jury coming out, coming back, uh, I had that feeling. I knew it was going terrible. When I got convicted, I went back to Belmarsh Prison. There was a load of staff waiting for me with the governor of the of the unit. And they expected me to kick off because I was kicking off all the time in the units. I shouldn't have been there. 
And then I was bumping into bully screws. Not all of them, of course, but there were some right arseholes in there. And I just fucking weighed them in. Uh, obviously, I got wrapped up and chucked in the concrete box. Um, naked, of course, because they take your clothes off you and you're in there naked. But the reality was when I came back, I didn't kick off. I was put in that cell and I asked for a sleeper. I said, give us a sleeper, will you? I want to get me a deal. No, I said, I can't give you a sleeper. I said, well, I'll tell you what. If you come back there in the morning and I've strung myself up because I ain't been able to get a fucking night's sleep, what are you going to say then? Give us a sleeper so I can sleep through tonight, will you? Give me a sleeper. But why should you have to go for it? You've just been sentenced to life imprisonment. Surely you can have a, a mild sleeper. And I'm, I'm not, I don't take sleeping pills. I'm not, I'll get sleep because of sleeper. Um, I just felt I am now in the belly of the beast. I know what I'm in because I've been here for 14 and a half months now in this shithole with the rules that they you got to live by. Being checked every 20 minutes in your cell through the night, all night long, to make sure you ain't escaped out the windows where there's a camera outside on your bleeding window, where people are watching on a, on a computer, on a screen. Um, I knew I was in trouble. And then they, they shipped me. They didn't ship me straight away. I had two prison officers come down to Balmarsh Unit to interview me to say, look, we're trying to make your integration into Whitemore Unit smooth flowing. I said, not a fucking tool. I'm not coming into that unit where you give us eight pieces of toilet paper to wipe your bum after you've been to the toilet and you've got to go and ask for another eight if you need some more. What about if you've got a bad tummy and you're on that bleeding loo and you're coming in my cell and checking it twice a day. I walk out of my cell, you rub me down. I go in the kitchen, I walk out, you rub me down. That was what I was going into. Um, and it was, it was, I thought, oh Christ. What? And then I arrived in the unit that didn't go too well as soon as he arrived ended up in the, the seg straight away again um, there's a grass in the unit he's dead now so I can't talk about him um, he's dead but he was involved in sending makeshift bombs to his wife allegedly which he got found guilty of uh, but being a grass in the prison system and he was in the unit I'd just been set up by a grass Roger Vincent so I thought Phew. I am not going in here where everyone, when someone else can make stories up about me. So I landed there. He knew I would, I'd be having a word with this fella. He knew because he was in the system that I won't suffer fucking grasses, I won't suffer nonces, I won't suffer bacons, and I will have it with them. What's bacon? Nonce. Okay. All right. Um, Pedophile, such like that. So we got locked, banged up over dinner time, conveniently. They didn't want to bring me into the unit with all the, the other lads that was open. There's only seven of us in there at the time. Um, we got unlocked. I looked to the right. There's a fellow walking alongside me, trying to cut the punches. But six foot three, something like that. Six four, maybe. forget where he was. There was about 17 stone, seven and a half stone. Quite a big was, fella. Yeah, quite a big fella. And I was about 11 stone, seven, 12 stone at the time. Stripped right down. Just, you know, that's my... Fighting weight was 11.7. Um, and I just walked straight up to him and I'll give him a fucking right up, uh, a straight right, left up. But he was asleep before he hit the floor with the right. And I remember leaning over to him and I said, no one can ever tell so I've ever told him anything. I set that record straight. <laughs> I had to carry him off. He was unconscious for five minutes. But I was doing like a thousand press-ups a day, proper, proper press-ups. Not like you see me on the, on the, uh, the video that I did recently where they film me doing the last set of 50 press-ups. You know, I used to knock 50s out for fun and on my last one I used to wink at you and just come back up. And that's like doing the diamond ones there, Steve. I can't do that now, <laughs> I admittedly. But at that time, my arms were like iron. 
You know, you di- they didn't, there's no giving them. So I think when I was banging him, as I used to say to the other boxers, do thousands of press-ups, your arms would be like iron. And when you hit them, they will feel it. He felt it. So then I was in the unit. Um, and it, and I was putting the block there, like I say, in the box. I thought, fuck it, hell. This ain't going too well, is it? I keep ending up in the blocks, in the units. Um, it's just getting worse. In life, I'm definitely a guy, and I think I, I think you're the same as this, which is half uh, glass half full rather than half empty. And no matter what we go through, there's always a silver lining. You know, when business is not going so well, even when you lose someone or if you're incarcerated, there's always kind of lessons there that you don't realise at the time, but actually fucking really serve you really well later on in your life with your book, with what you're doing, yeah. the public speaking, etc. So prison, how did it shape you and what did you learn from it? Prison taught me that there are grey areas. I was very regimental. Black is black, white is white. Uh, and I was... I was blind, really. I wasn't as mature as I thought I was in that if someone told me something about someone, I'd act on it. I said, hold on a minute. Why are they saying this? Is there an ulterior motive here? And let's see what that person has to say. Whereas before, I, I didn't. And so it's given me a wide, a wider uh, understanding of society and people, why they do things. And learning to live with people in a massive house, 120 of you on a block, on a, on a house block, all different moods and personalities. And that teaches you to be able to, I get on well with people anyway, but you definitely learn, you study people more is what I'm getting at. And you study people's behavioral patterns and such, but the positiveness of it. I looked around and thought there's a lot of negativity in prison because they're directing their anger at each other for being banged up. Instead of looking at it, this is my home now. I need to make it my home and make the best I can for however long I'm here. And think about what I'm doing here that is having a negative impact on my life and what is a positive. Um, so I didn't like bickering and bitching. I wouldn't, didn't like passing comment about people anyway. But you found you got yourself caught up in that in the early stages of prison because you're unhappy yourself being in the units. And it's just amplified. So it taught me a lot about the understanding of people. It educated me. I mean, I now mix with people. Duncan Campbell, Judy Christie, and many other people, actors and and people of, of charities that I consider respectable, worthy people who meet the, met the Queen and such. And my life's transformed massively, and I'm grateful for that. But it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't gone to prison. I've always exceeded in life and excelled and gone forward and met people way above my position as an early man. But would I have ended up being killed or in prison again, anything for something else? I was quite volatile when I was a young man, kidnapping people and stuff like that who had done wrong. But I would have ended up in prison at some point for a longer period, but not murder. It's actually a really interesting view you took there. And I actually really admire it, which is you're now in a prison, but actually you've got to reframe that. And it's actually your home. And being banged up with a mixture of people, it actually really can serve you as a salesperson and then a business person later on because if you get to know the different personalities and how to deal with these people calmly and methodically, that can really give you some really good sales skills or some traits that can help you on in your life. Now, I'm not saying let's go to prison just to learn these things, but what I am saying is if you are in that situation, get something from it yeah. rather than rather than have it been sapped away from you. But, there must have been some edgy people in there. I'm not asking you to name any names, of course, but what was the most 
chaotic, weird, devastating shit that you saw in prison? There's some real violent people in prison who will use the most extreme uses of violence, whether it's boiling oil and putting it over your head. And you saw Sta- that? Yeah, I've seen that. A head, uh, and they just score. You know, crackling. Goes like crackling. He went straight into intensive care, nearly died. He was getting out on the Monday. That happened to him on the Friday. Um, I've seen people stabbed to bits, slashed to bits, where there's more slashes on them than I could count. All over their back, their arms, their face, they're everywhere, where they've been attacked in the showers and slashed to bits. Um, stabbed through the neck, ears fall off when they've had oil put on their ears. I've seen masses attack where you've got wolf packs attacking people, especially in the, the Islamic state now where the terrorists are coming in and converting people who are misfits, really, and never been welcomed in society. And they get welcomed with open arms and then they become martyrs in the sense where they think they're they're powerful and you're coming under the blanket punishment who's camouflaged at the blanket protection of the, of the Islamic state in prison, I must say. Um, and then that's manipulated into going to commit acts of crime of stabbings and such otherwise you get your order and you will do it now my girlfriend's half half muslim and she's half uh indian so i ain't racist anybody knows me knows that but the fact is there's a big problem in the in the prison system and there's a lot of violence surrounded around that uh, and they were probably some of the worst instances i ever saw do you ever get caught up in any of them yeah i've, I've had loads of pretty i've had a Quite a few. I'm renowned in the prison system for having a straightener and having, against, and having fights, but only in relation to when you're treading on my toes, now back off or I'll stamp on yours. Leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. My wing report said Lane's good for the wing. He's good atmosphere. Uh, he's polite. He's respectful. He mixes well with people. He don't suffer fools, is what it said. He don't suffer rapists, paedophiles, and they won't have him on the wing. And not a lot of other people, but... Um, very rarely you'd find out paedophiles on the ring because they went straight on to protection but rapists and crimes like robbing as one fella robbed eight women by a knife point two of them were pregnant and he kept them in their house in scumbag scumbag I fucking chased him right off the wing shot and he was sent to me from another prison to go and see Kevin Lane he'll look after you they didn't even know his background first thing I said to him I said what are you in for he said robbery alright Robbery. I don't like robbery. Most of these kids on the street now are robbing people for their trainers in their cells. And they're robbing people. This, that ain't a criminal. That's a two-bob fucking arsehole. And uh, so I'm going off the track there now. But I believe that in the prison system, um, it's going to get worse. A lot more violence. There was a fella disemboweled and had his cock stuck in his mouth in Franklin. Okay. There was five murders in 2011, I believe, in high security estate. I don't know what it is now. It doesn't get reported on too much, does it? So you were incarcerated for about 18, nearly 20 years, right? I did 20 in one go. Okay. So during that time, you must have seen and experienced a lot of stuff, but also outside of those four walls is the economy, is is life, is business, etc. And I'm thinking now we're about to go in, quote-unquote, a recession. You know, it's going to be probably one of the worst ones we've seen in this country because... There's lots of stuff. The COVID, the lockdowns, that's obviously had a knock-on effect. Now interest rates are going up to combat inflation. People are going to start losing their homes. Businesses are going up the wall because energy rates are going up. I mean, I spoke to a Turkish restaurant right near me. It does really well, always packed. He said, they've gone up by three times. He said, what am I meant to do? Put a chicken kebab from 20 quid up to 40 or 50 quid. I can't do that. I can't do that. But it means at the end of the month, I'm going to be struggling. There must be there must be correlation between 
the economy, businesses going up the wall, and then suddenly these people find themselves doing things they shouldn't be doing, maybe out of desperation, and they end up in the prison system. You must uh, see that correlation where the economy's gone for a recession, and then a lot more people end up in jail, and the, the, the jails are going pretty wild. Yeah, you'll find that criminals will go and a career criminal, uh, he might come over prison after serving another lengthy sentence for, well, listen, a pal of mine, uh, he's now got a refuge, uh, not refuge, rubbish uh, business. Couple of trucks, earning a good living, but he ain't robbing banks no more. Um, but people will look at what they know best when they haven't got nothing. Whether to put food in their, in their mouth, for their children's mouth, they would go out and do something that they wouldn't have ordinarily done uh, prior to a recession coming in. A lot more people will return back to crime, whether it's buying and selling fags, booze, knocked off gear, then they get nicked for handling stolen goods. The robbery side of things, that'll always be there. Like, I say street robbery, jewellers, windows going through. But however you look at a recession, unfortunately, there's a positive for a lot of people. This recession will be a positive for me. It would have been a positive if it hadn't come in, and it will be positive if it does come in, because the reality of the situation is that people are now going to have to sell their homes or hand them back if they can't pay. But what the options they've got now in relation to the business that I do now, I've designed a real home that you can build out of concrete, out of foundations, and I've taken that home and I've also put it onto a superstructure chassis. So the point I make is this. Residential parks are growing massive in this country because of the housing crisis. It is phenomenal. Councils are paying £800 to £1,000 a month for a mobile. I've taken a galvanised steel home built in steel. Like I say, put it on out of foundations, build it out of foundations. I've put the same house onto a superstructure chassis that gives people the opportunity to buy a house. I'm not selling them for £300,000, but people are selling my homes for £300,000. So if you had a house for £800,000, you owe £100,000 on the mortgage, you could sell that or you're going to lose it because you've not got no work or whatever that is. Go and buy a house, a real house for £300,000 on the coast or in a nice nice part of the country, not Holiday Park either. You have your own plot of land and such, and you'll still have three or £400,000 in the bank. You might be 50 or 60 and you think, do you know what? I'm going to put my feet up. I'm going to pop them about, I'm going to buy a car here or there, I'm going to do what I want, I'm going to do a little bit of um, antique furniture, whatever you like, making clothes or artists or whatever you want to do, but you've got sufficient funds in your bank that has been caused by the crisis in this country. And that will be a massive positive for me because I'm supplying homes at an affordable rate to people, £125,000 I will give you a home for, a turnkey, on this superstructure chassis unless you want it to come out of foundations and you've got to buy the land. But nonetheless, where can you go and get a house? If you put it on a bit of land, it would be worth at least a half a million pound, depending on what area you're in. 750 or more in an in, uh, affluent area. And that's what I've done. So for me, I see the recession as a positive, unfortunately. Uh, uh, absolutely. As I mentioned next door, when I was giving you a little bit of sales pitch about the Richard Hamilton market, in COVID-19, most conventional areas fell by the wayside, but the art market and collectibles as a whole rose up. And I, I see the same thing happening with with uh, with this recession coming. I think, you know, again, there's a silver lining with all these things. And it is about education. It's about exposing yourself to the right information and then taking action with that information. And you're definitely doing that. And just on that note, you remind me of one of my other guests I had on here, Alfie Best, yeah, who's yeah. got... Um, 
uh, who's got... 97 holiday parks in, yeah. this, in residential. Yeah, I forgot uh, Wildcrest Park Homes. I've also had his son on here as well. Um, really good guy, very, very successful man and uh, very, very wise. We went to, we went... Uh, contact already in relation to my product so my product's been put been should we say broached for the award of the year the master federation award of the year but because i've got a criminal record i can't go forward with that so i've got to get there's 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 some legal legalities that i've got to juggle around for it to go forward but alfie best is for instance he's looked at uh, my homes and he came back very respectfully and very quickly because he, he recognises a good product. And what I've got, I can supply within two months. There's a waiting list for a year in mobiles. But anybody who lives in a mobile or a chalet, they are that. They're bouncy. You can hear things. You can hear people through the wall. They haven't got the real home factor where he recognises my homes are solid. They're soundproof. They're mortgageable if they come out of the foundations as well. So like I say, I take exactly the same home, which is mortgageable, and put it onto a chassis. It's not mortgageable because you can wheel it away. Obviously, it's a massive superstructure, but um, it's allowed people now to be able to have a real home instead of a caravan. And I can do 15,000 of them a year. Module Homes UK. Well, it's uh, Module Manufacturers, which is a new company name. But the Instagram is on Module Homes UK. And you can see the two products I've just done on there. £125,000 for a 72 square metre two-bedroom barn and a little white picker house for 85000 Where could you go and get a home for that nowadays? Beautiful as well. They're not they're not two bob uh, buildings. Exceptional. Alfie's seen it as well as Peter Fury and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Chrissy Balls and so many other people in this country have gone, wow, why did we think of this? Because you have cornered the market. There's no one done what you've done, Kevin. People are going to follow me now and good luck to them. I don't give two monkeys if they copy my deny design. It's taken me a year to get this going. Since I've been released from prison on a recall, I've been flying back and forth to Turkey and I've taken me a year to do this and they're a little bit behind. They will get that, but nonetheless, I'm in the door and Alfie Best uh, recognises that. So it feels good to be able to have a product that people recognise as the absolute bee's knees. And so I'm hoping and that uh, our predictions and forecasts will come forward and pay off dividends for everybody to earn a decent living where my my business will fill homes with goodness, decent money, love their job, love their work, love coming to work with me, not for me, and I'll provide you a home, for instance, say, Stephen, that you've got no aggro with and you're nothing but smiles when I deliver it to you. You're not calling up because there's snagging problems and this and that and this and that. It's just all smiles. So yes, a bit long-winded my answer there. But I'm so <laughs> no, excited. I'm I'm happy for you and congratulations, mate. Um, you're a go-getter. Clearly, um, I'm referencing a, a few interviews you've done before. So taking you right back to when you were an early age, you had a lot of energy, yeah. Yeah. And and because of that. Sometimes the energy was channeled in, in, in ways where it wasn't suitable for school. I think you got ex- expelled and stuff like that. And then you did, you know, there was stints where you were doing some crime, etc. Can you talk to me about that when you were younger, about being expelled? And then I know you said you've never been a murderer, per se. You've never done something to, to murder someone. But other stuff like kidnapping, etc. Can you go into these stories? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I've always been... 
let's get this. There's a lot of people out there who are pretty good with their hands, all right? And I was pretty good in my area with my hands, but only for the right reasons. I had a brother who had some health issues with his head and yet where Mr. Magoo crash helmet, he had plates in his head. So I was fighting from the infants for people taking the piss out of my brother. And then it goes forward and then I wasn't a, a bully type man. You, 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 at some point in your life as a teenager, you can run away with yourself because you become really good for your hands. But then it comes a, a reality check, don't you? And um, I was more defender of the suppressed or the bullied at school. Um, I went on then to meet a girl, Kim Purcell, her family had a security company. But I've always worked, I got expelled from school for hitting a teacher who bit me arm. I was caught in a sixth form up with Richard Malin. Um, he started manhandling me, I've punched him, he's bit me. I've hit him again, I got expelled for that. Um, I then went on to work for a gentleman called Josh Clack as an apprentice builder. I then went on to, I had a flat at that time, 15 with a pal of mine called Mark Bayliss. Uh, he was 18 and I was paying my own rent working, looking after myself, working in a chip shop in the night or in the evenings to bring in more revenue. But I loved the job. I just loved it and I loved working. So I'd go in the daytime from working on the site or building extensions with Josh into the chippy. From there, I got an apprentice carpentry um, with fashionist joiners. Um, and I went on through different companies uh, and ended up Working for myself when I was 18, I finished my apprenticeship. I thought I sold this. Um, started buying and selling cars at a market stall. Um, bought my first house when I was 18 or a flat. So I was branching out. At that time, then I started working security doors. Um, I was asked to work licensed premises. I weren't old enough to be in some of the places over 21. But by that time, I had a 911 Porsche, white one. Uh, RS Turbo, I'd bought another house. I was, it, later on, a few years after that, two years after I was buying a house a month and flipping them. So I was doing exceedingly well for a young man, as well as buying lorry loads of bleeding whiskey or lorry load of Tampax and getting rid of them. And believe me, they sell. Tampaxes and whiskey sell, and so does bleeding comfort washing powders. I used to get a lorry load of it, pallets of it, and it's to go, you, know, you wouldn't believe. So earning a fortune in that day, and that's what people are going to turn to now, the the gear out the back of a door and such. But from that came, oh, my son's, uh, not my son's, oh, someone said to me once, oh, my daughter's had a bloody good hiding off her boyfriend. He's knocked her teeth out and such like that. Oh, what is he? Cheeky bastard, gives his dress. I'd go around and teach him the error of his ways. So I was misguided at the time. Why should I do that for them? Things have changed again now in society. You couldn't get away with that so much now like I used to years ago and I'll take you for a ride. So I remember once someone sold me a car, it was a ringer, and uh, they didn't give me the plates to make that car good, and the chassis plates and such. I got nicked. He tried to do a runner to Australia. I kidnapped his brother. Took his brother away. They agreed to give me the money back. They gave me the money back. I got nicked. Always handing a car over. They reported it stolen, the silly bastards, right? So we're at a handover point to give them their car, this, a car back I took off them as well. I let the brother go. They was uh, coming to deliver the money. I had people following them on phone, different people at different uh, positions saying, yeah, they're okay. So as we're sitting in the bleeding car park, waiting to hand this car over and get our readies, the old Bill swooped on us. And they nick us. We're in the back of the van. 
old SPG vans, you know, and I've got a suit on, I, I like wearing jackets and suits. My pal's with me. Marcus Lemaire, my best mate, him and Dane Wolf, best mate. So we're sitting in the back of this police van, not speaking. My mate goes, I don't even know him. He said, I've just met him in the calf and he's offered to give me a lift down the road to pay my electric bill. And if I get cut off, <laughs> I'll burst out laughing. I thought, you stupid bastard. There's pictures of me and you in every police station around here. And I got Nick for kidnapping once and the police said, if Lane was there, Lemaire's there, Nick him. And he's trying to make out he didn't know me, but... That got dropped that day. The people coming to the police station, so we're not ch pressing charges, blah, 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 blah. We got released that evening or the next day. The next day we got released. But I, have, I did serve a sentence for kidnapping where I took someone away that was allegedly involved in threatening a girl with a knife and a baby. It wasn't him. It was his another person he was working with. But he was put forward. And the local area who was put forward as a man that done that, that came back to us. I kidnapped him. Got the wrong man. But that's only come about in the last year that it was the wrong man. And I've met with that man, that gentleman in uh, restorative justice, and sat and listened to him. And listened to how he felt after what I'd done to him. <sighs> totally changed me. Okay. But I had a lot of time to think about things like that in prison, but to hear it from someone, powerful. You, so um, can, can I ask how many times have you kidnapped someone? I'm smiling about it because I couldn't quite recall the amount. 10, and, 20 times? Uh, what do you call kidnapping? Taking someone away I want to have a word with? That's kidnap. Yeah. 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 More than that. So, okay. When when there's that, because um, I'm just like, I'm fascinated by this sort of conversation. I'm really like interested in it, like the psychology from both you and also the person that you've got. What do you do with someone? Like, so so if I pulled someone in and said, right, you're staying with me until they're going to pay, pay me back. What do you do at that point? I'll give you a scenario. Uh, you've manhandled my old woman. Okay. Right? In a kebab shop, you've pushed her out of the way. Fuck it, no. I'm not having that. That's how I was in the day. I'll come looking for you. I can't find you. I'll find your mate. This is just a... Hypothetical. Hypothetical, shall we say. Uh, terrible act. Years later, if I would have had her done this, I tried to find you, I'm tracking you down, I come across you in a high street, I'm ramming your car in a high street with a with my car, I'm ramming you to get to you. Uh, you get away, I go in a pub, I take your pal away to find out where you are. You've flown out of the country. In the meantime, you're taken down the woods and your labs, legs are stabbed a number of times and you're dumped at the hospital to make your wounds good. That I consider to be absolutely atrocious behaviour. But many people have done things like that when they're young men, thinking they're doing the right thing. These pen, these people mixing that circle, it was extreme, that type of behaviour. So there's different elements of kidnapping, why you'd kidnap someone, whether they owe money or they've touched your old woman or hit your kid or things like that. Like Dave Gunn, he bit a fella's eyelids off and bit his lips off because he punched his daughter in the face, drunk, split all her eye open, 12-year-old girl or 9-year-old girl, little girl. Dave went down and bit his lips off. Dave felt that was right. I think it was the geezer and the scumbag deserved everything he got. Hitting a 12-year-old girl, you know, fair play to Dave. But I regret a lot of the things I've done. And the prison taught me that I wasn't right in many ways. And I'm actually ashamed of stuff I've done. Because I was misguided and misled and corralled by 
what I was doing at that time, working the doors, going into that venture of collecting debts, maybe, which I don't collect debts, but um, I don't even collect my own bleeding debts that people <laughs> owe me money for. And I'm owed money, um, maybe because times changed me. But the kidnappings, some I don't regret because they deserved what they got. And it was a bit like, oh, yeah, it's an horrible bastard. If anyone gave him a good eye, didn't they? Fucking good job. You're one of them people. Mm. But there's people that didn't deserve to have done to him what they did. I took a fella down the woods once. He put a shotgun to a, a woman, actually, and she had a baby in her arms at a door. And he um, he had a shotgun. Well, he got took for a ride. He had a rope put around his neck, taken down the woods, strapped to a tree, and his knees were broken. Both his knees. And then he was taken and dumped back at his house. Which we didn't have to walk far. <laughs> um, I know a judge and in other uh, uh, interviews that, you know, I think you refer to as a vigilante. Would yeah. you regard yourself as a vigilante? A fool, that's what I regard myself as. But yes, I was, uh, he did say he was a vigilante. And the jury in that case come back and said they made a wrong decision. They was forced into the decision for different reasons. And there'd have been an immediate appeal, immediate bail application. And I said, no, I haven't given evidence. I haven't said I didn't do it. Um, it's come out why I did it. Mm. The judge has called me a vigilante for the reasons I did it. But I was expecting eight years for that. And I got four lots of two to run con concurrently. I thought, fucking hell. And I said, don't appeal. I might go in front of another judge and might get found guilty and give me an A. I said, I'll take it. I've done six months for mine. I got bail because the old bill got caught out lying at the 6-1 uh, committal, which is an old system. And they they give me bail from court there and then because they were caught out like I say lying, meeting witnesses at, uh, outside their house or at the end of their road, asking them to make statements naming me and all stuff like that. It shows fabrication. Um, so it's well documented in my in my history that the police will fit me up, probably because I've got away with so much in their eyes, nicking cars and ringing them and handling stolen goods and some of the violence, the fighting and such. Hmm. But there's, what was it? I've lost my track there. Well, I was just saying about the, um, uh, what was I actually saying? We went off on a bit of a tangent there. We were talking about uh, uh, being a vigilante. A vigilante, yeah. And I, I, I accept that I have done things, a lot of things for people where injustice have been done to them. In the old days, was like you'd have someone in the area who was well-known, or a few people was well-known, and they'd go around and talk to someone and it'd be resolved that way. And I think that is the that is society where you will look to your peers or people of, of a certain ilk that are, I've made some terrible mistakes, I accept that, but overall, my nature is very, very good and I'm more for doing good for people than I am harm. Hmm. Um, I used to harm people if they'd done something wrong to someone good. Uh, that's how I see it, but yeah, misguided young man but in the same breath still really liked today even I go places where I've grew up and the reception I receive from people even to people that I've had run-ins with and that you know I see them often shake their hand the fellow I kidnapped him I go around I've been around where he lives and I've called from him and messages him sometime it's not my time to give something back for what I did wrong. I think I think naturally what I've read about you, speaking to you, getting to slightly know you and seeing other interviews, regardless whether the app was right or wrong at the time, you've actually got principles. 
And I think people admire that about people got, you know, proper principles that they stick by. Um, and I, that's why I think a lot of people like you, Kevin. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. I, in prison, when I was in there, I would say, you're no good. Don't fucking talk to me. I've heard there's a right smell about you. I don't like you. Stay away from me or else. Fucking me and you'll get it on. All right? If you want to get it on, we'll get it on there and then. All right? So, but you may be in prison, Steve, right? And you're thinking, you're a game fucker. But the difference between a game fucker and saying something to a no good cunt like that or just turning your head or staying away from me is you can end up in the block, you can get a nick and you ain't going home. You're, you're switched on. You're brainier than me. So your principles are still rigid, heavily entrenched, but you've got the brain and the foresight to go, I'm swerving this one. I didn't, because I see if I didn't attack you or approach you front on, then I'm a lesser person. Am I a coward? What will people think of me? So that was driven behind me. What will people think of me if I don't put you straight? I, first of all, because I don't agree with you, but then if I turn my back in here, I was always analysing myself. And then it took me some years to get over that when I was being bounced around the prison system, 18 moves in four years, I had my first four years, in and out, in and out, fucking court, all sorts of madness. Never had been able to settle because of my heavily entrenched views that were wrong in many aspects. Um, but I did have heavy, strong principles that also stood out in the prison. So because I had those principles and I did make a stand, it put me on a pedestal where people respected me, they liked me, um, and they see I was game. I mean, I've had fights with people. I thought, fuck me, if he gets hold of me, he is going to pull my head off and shit down my neck. <laughs> he's that fucking big. And he's doing 220 key bench presses and silly stuff like that. But put me in a straightener with him. I let him that many times you think you're surrounded. And I'm fucking doing 100 key, dumb, uh, um, 100 key press with two 50 key dumbbells, 10 sets of 10, natural. And you think, well, if I'm, if I'm doing that, you imagine me, bang. And I hit people now, Steve, okay, if I'm sparring with them and stuff, right? And I damage them. I've, I've, I, uh, I think that's because I've done a thousand chin-ups a week with weights and I've got good back power, I've got good balance. I'm naturally well balanced on a phone with shots. And people go over, 22 stone blokes, go over like straws. But you'll get a little fella, a little bantamweight, who's got the same power, mm. you know. Uh, so my heavily entrenched views and my way I behaved in prison allowed people to think about me in another manner where he's good, he's friendly. And I had a lot of friends then because obviously I'm handy with my hands. I had certain beliefs. As that for I had a lot of friends. When you've got a lot of friends, you've got their troubles as well. Mm. And the time isn't. See, if you're popular in prison, it can be very good, or it can be very bad. If you ain't popular in prison, you haven't got no friends, that can be very good, and that can be very bad. Mm. You've got to find the positives in that. It took me about 10 years before I really, really went, oh, I have had enough of these bollocks, people using me in prison. And you do it because you think, oh, he's, he's, he's a suppressed person, he's that, he's a no good wanker, doing that to him, going in there, laying on top of his bed, naked, when someone's in bed. Why is he doing that? You know why he's doing it. And then that person would come to me and say, Kevin, he's fucking coming in my bed, in my in my cell in the morning, laying on top of me when I'm in bed naked. I said, what can I can do? I'm fucking shit through him. He's violent and that. Oh, I'll have a word of him. And then at the same time, someone else came to me and said, he's nicked my tobacco out of my cell, Kevin. This is a very extremely violent man. 
and I had to have a confrontation with him. He's always trying to get me to train. I said, I don't want to train you. I don't want to do one fucking lift. I want to move fucking 100 key 10 times, 10 sets of 10. I've done a thousand fucking ton. Uh, I've moved 10 ton in my workout. You've moved 250 key mm. once. My workout's different. So I've got him walking back in like a lion's cage, walkway. And he's going, have you heard what people are saying about me? I didn't like the character. I'll say that openly now. I said, yeah, I have. And I said, if you don't stop doing what you're doing, you're going to get your toast. Uh, you don't stop doing treading on people's toes. You're going to get your stamps on. And he stopped and he looked at me. And I fucking got his eyes. And I'm thinking, I'm reading his eyes. I'm thinking, one false move from you, you're going to get it. And I will fucking hit you that many times. You will think you're surrounded and you will be hurt. And he looked at me, ducked his nut and coat and walking. I thought, fucking hell, now's the result. <laughs> <laughs> but, I'm going to yeah. read you out a quote. You think you're the daddy of this lot, don't you? This was a quote said by a guy called DC Smackman. Spackman. Spackman. Um, yeah, Spackman. Bit of an odd name, that. Um, and funny enough, as I was reading about this guy, he actually ended up being jailed in 2003 for... Yes, he did. He was a detective inspector. He was a detective sergeant at the time, in my case. Brought into the case um, to... I'll show you a picture. Brought into the case because of Roger Vincent and David Smith. He had handled them previously in, in another investigation where they worked with him and gave evidence. So where's the camera for this? So you can show it into this one? Can they see that picture? Yeah, they will be able to. So that gentleman there is laughing. He's just been charged with murder. That's Roger Vincent, and he is just engaged in his confidential chats where he says he wants to assist the police with this case and have his charges uh, dropped. So Spackman was brought in because of his previous handling with him. Um, they then set about fabricating the case about me, and Spackman had nicked me earlier. But what, what, what so I don't know if you, you touched on this before, and, uh, and I, I don't know if I've got the answer when I've been, but why would they set you up? So when Spackman had nicked me some years earlier for ringing cars, he came to a house and he said, you've got a better house than me. I said, we'll change your job. Bit sarcastic. <laughs> uh, uh, they didn't nick me for, uh, they didn't charge me for ringing cars because I wasn't ringing it with the people they did. But when I was being moved around the police station, I was just saying, fucking keep your mouth shut and you'll be all right. He came to my cell, said, you think you're the daddy of this lot? I'll have you one day. Slam the door shut. Years later, I got nicked, and I think, fucking, I know that name's Spackman, Spackman, and it dawned on me. He went to prison for four years for uh, complicated acts of deception and fraud, uh, worthy of a seasoned fraudster, who's what the judge said about him. And in my case, he'd done exactly the same. He'd fabricated statements, withheld evidence. He was in control of disclosure, exhibits, witness statements, uh, PII he was involved in he controlled the Holmes database which is a computerised system he signed it off so he was in the hub of everything and that's how come they allowed me to fit, fit me up and that was Christopher Spackman so when Panorama tracked him down and filmed him he represented himself at court he kept his pension up until he was discharged well he should have been lost his pension completely but I believe he said if I fall and I don't keep that you lot are going because you all fitted up Kevin Lane with me I didn't fit him up on my own um he represented himself and Panorama were denied denied the right to show his face because he'd changed his name by now and changed his life. But what about what he's done to me? But that was Christopher Spackman. He's a weasel. He was like the sheriff of Nottingham. 
Ray Weasley type of man. And other witnesses in other cases have said he was the most feared man in Watford at the time because he was just fitting people up. Because the same man, this same man, I mean, he stole £160,000 from Hertfordshire police money that was seized from, from, from criminals. But this is the same guy investigating you. He seems so backwards. He did. The, the same sort of traits that he did in his own case were replicated in mine and that of Khan and Bashir, another case that their conviction was squashed as a result of Spackman's actions. But he replicates his actions. And I've gone, well, that's what he did in that one. That's what he did in my one. That's what he did in my one. A bit of coincidental that they're all the same modus operandi, isn't it? But a right weasel type of man. Um, and police have come forward, like I say, and said that he'd fitted me up that we were his colleagues. So I'm in a very strong position here. So I know TV uh, wasn't a thing um, and you were your head in a book and you're obviously producing this and, and you released it. And basically this book had new fresh evidence to get you out of prison. Is that right? Yeah. How the hell? Did, I mean, it is a movie. Like how, how did you go about manufacturing all of that evidence and getting it into a book, getting it out there and then that being strong enough to overturn because you were told probably on countless times you're never going to get out of here yeah. for this murder. Yeah. Well, they asked for 30 years when I was in court. They stood up and said to the judge that this man is responsible for this, this, this and this. Um, and they were talking about other murders and they asked for the minimum of 30 years to be imposed back in 1994 or 95. All right, they get them every other day now those sort of sentences but at the time I thought oh 30 years are you fucking sure I didn't do it in the first place and now you want to give me 30 years um, very worrying uh, and then, then ended up getting 18 years three years after I was sentenced I received my tariff on New Year's Eve by white arsehole of a screw and he said I've got something for you Elaine and he gave it to me I went oh, fucking hell that's a result because <laughs> I was expecting 30 years and I got 18 and I served 20 but I would have never got out because I would have remained high risk double A single A and you're not going anywhere what I consider you a risk to society a danger and that is the categorisation you go down from triple A double A single A B, C, C and D and then you're released well you ain't going anywhere if you're K are you but how did you find all that evidence? How did you pull it right, all together? Sorry, yeah, so what I did was whilst I was, because I never had a TV, so I'd be in my cell day and night, afternoons, evenings, going through paperwork, trawling it, gathering the facts, putting it all down. And I'm talking of years and years of studying the papers and formulating it all together. And in the 2004, I thought I'm going to write it down into a book and I'm going to explain it in that, in that sense. And as I have done now, and like I say, it's 4.9 on Amazon, so it is an exceptional read. It set the case out for me on paper, in one format, and that's what made the book. And it was questioning the evidence in my case and what took place, factual stuff. There's been no court orders to say, remove that evidence, remove the book. It's all factual, from paperwork I've received. And... It was, it, I put it together in there as a way of fighting my case. And that's how come the book came about and all the facts by correlating them together in the head. They've got to go into the head and then you've got to source documents for the exact wording. Sometimes I'll be, I've looked for documents five days once for two or three words, not much more than that. And I think, where's that document gone? And in the mayhem in the prison, in the cell, with all the paperwork, you might put it back somewhere. You keep missing it because it's stuck to another piece of paper. You think, where is it? Five days. Yeah. And as a result of having it in the head, 
I then got a, a, a word processor, glorified word processor. It was a laptop, but they took all the gubbins out of it and such. Put a 10 kilo uh, case around it, still a case of something getting inside. It was welded. And I used that. I used to get memory sticks. And as a result of that, you can see the format starts being set out for you. And then when you've got it written down and you write different to how you type, I don't know if you know that, Steve. If you write something and then you type it, you, you, it will come out different. And I'm sure many writers have right. found the same. So when I started typing, I go back and change a bit. When you've written it, you've got all that in front of you, haven't you? you can, so uh, that's what made the book. The, that's what made my case, the book. And so I put my case forward. So I met you down Boxing Booth and I want to give a shout out to them because the amount of good people I've met down that gym, I, I mean, putting the gym to a side, boxing and sport in itself. I mean, the amount of good people I've met because if you, you train, if you're a go-getter, if you do boxing, etc., you've got to be a type of person, you've got to have certain characteristics and they're always interesting people. There are people that are, are good people nine times out of 10 and they're looking to do something in this world. And... I know from your previous conversations, you was a fighter, you keep yourself in very good nick and you, you're 54 years of age and you know, you're, you're in very, very, very good, good condition. How important is the boxing training, weight training, being fit? How important is that for your, your life? And you know, what sort of advice you give other people in regard to taking up training? Because for me, without training, business would just fall by the wayside. Structure at the minute, um, Sikhs are coming into the boxing game a lot at the moment, whereas they're setting up boxing uh, rings in their temples and such to bring the kids into it, boys and girls. And I was a guest speaker the other week at a temple in Slough. And what I said to the children there was it gives you structure, discipline. You get into the ring on your own, you lose 11-0, you've taken a bit of an idea. It's not like football, you lose 11-0. You've got 11 players to share it with. That creates a certain amount of strength within a person to be able to step into that ring, confidence, and have a go at each other. But also massive amounts of respect. Because I used to box with Matthew Tate, and he was a term pro when I went to prison. He is now Abramovich's personal bodyguard. But me and Matthew would spar each other three times a week, smash the hell out of each other, and each time... And what about sparring? You know what it's like, Steve. It just goes like that sometimes, doesn't it? Mm. And, uh, and as soon as, oh, you, you, stop, 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 stop. Cuddling each other and laughing. <laughs> but at that point, we want to bleed and bang each other. And then, yeah. stop. I feel it teaches people a massive amount of respect for themselves and other people. And you have structure because you've got to get up and go to that place to get it and to train hard and feel pain. And if you can do that, You'll, do, you'll find a lot of other things in life far easier and simpler as in going to work and getting up and enjoying what you do. So definitely you endorse it for your life, your business and just for your mindset as well. I endorse it, I do, yes, Steve. But so my children, my two boys could box and hold their hands up, but they don't fight. So I'm proud of that. Would I want my two younger boys now to get into the ring and fight? No, I wouldn't. I don't want them smashing their faces up and doing what I did and such. I mean, I done too bad. Make and miss, make and pay. But I want my boys to be able to hold their hands up and have the confidence to say, listen, mate, I ain't fucking pleased. I don't want no aggravation. But if they come any closer than there, they get that. Mm. And they get that for self-defense. 
So I will teach my boys how to handle themselves. If they want to go off and be a fucking ballerina or whatever you call them, do a bit of that. Or I don't give two monkeys as long as they're happy. Mm. Um, but I do. I will teach them structure. Um, tell me about what you're up to right now. Obviously, you've got the book, and you mentioned about acting. I've done loads of filming recently. I uh, can't mention some of it because I'm into contract. I'm in talking. I know, I know it's great. <laughs> I'm loving it, Steve. I lose track of who and when because it's, they're different channels, and uh, sometimes I've got various channels contracting me with different producers. Going really well. A lot of uh, prison-related stuff. Um, I've done stuff, uh, and I've got other stuff coming up. I'm contracting. I can't discuss that, but it's powerful. Uh, really powerful for what the viewers are going to see. I've got something coming up where um, I'm not going to be around for a little while. I'm really looking forward to doing that. And there's a lot more other things in the pipeline, which is it's society, I feel, going to get something given back to them and understanding of what people go through for what I've been through. Uh, and it's difficult because I can't elaborate much more than that, but it is really powerful. I've done some filming recently with, with some people. My God, is it powerful. So just to sort of run off this podcast, Kevin, um, obviously been incarcerated for like 20 years and now got so many good things happening. I mean, acting is something I would like to get into eventually. I don't know if it's acting. I'll just do bomb this myself, Steve. Yeah. But it's, I was being asked to sit in front of a camera and do stuff like that, yeah. Well, the reason why I mention acting is because I've been on some some websites and they actually put you down as an actor now. Yeah, which do is, they? Yeah, they do. Yeah, I'll show, show you after. Don't pay me, fuck all. <laughs> <laughs> but do you feel like now you've got to get more into your life because you missed out 20 years not of your life but you were in there rather than out here so yeah possibly you would understand this and so are many other people if you're a chaser you're chasing a dream you see something you say oh, I can make that work so I've always been ahead of myself in times where I thought that 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 so the modular homes I was in it in 2017 Metal, camera security in 1991. Look where that went. I got banged up um, for the kid, a kidnapping a little while after. But I, I have seen things where uh, I've seen, seen the light before other people. So I feel that where my life is going now with the filming, the book, they got this book got book of the year of 100,000 in a book club. And so, on, so, yeah, where's that going to take me if I'm not being filmed for? something to be put forward for Rupert Murdoch's channel or Netflix or whatever else. I feel that's very positive. But more than anything, Steve, just to recap, are the homes that I've built. I've had an idea in my head to be able to give people real homes when they're not getting real homes, holiday parks, residential, so on and so forth, or people who buy a plot of land and they pull in a mobile because it's on wheels, it comes under portable and temporary accommodation. But I can wheel that home in on wheels, remove the wheels and load it down onto DPC level, don't prove course level. So then you, you're not got a raised platform. Mm. That to me is succeeding in life. Finding something, having an idea and making it work. I came out from prison on a recall and I've done this in the time I've come home. I've scrimped and scraped, I've borrowed money. I nearly pawned my watch the other month to get down to that money you've got to pay on your vehicle, transport. I've got to pay 21 grand next week for transport, just for one vehicle. But because they're my show homes that have been built from design, you've got to see if there's any flaws. Once they're built, you've got to bring them over on lorry. But future sales will come over flat-packed. So the cost is minimal. So 
I feel that succeeding in the struggles I've had with prison, the book, the filming and the house is at last, um, life's feeling, it's looking like it's going to turn and be pretty good. And as a result of that, so many people will be happy. I really admire you, Kevin. I really enjoyed this conversation. Here is the very last question. I came up with a mantra. In actual fact, in my own gym, I've got it above the door and it goes like this. Be happy, never content. Now, Kevin, I've got my own interpretation of what that means to me. I try and live by it every single day. Not all the time, you know, but I try, I try and remind myself about it all the time. If I were to ask you, Kevin Lane, what does be happy, never content mean to you? Never Be happy as all the time if you can. Never content with what you've done. Keep looking for bettering, to better yourself and to do better. And to do better in the world, not just for yourself. Great, uh, great conversation, great answer. And thank you very much for your time. Can I just give you my mantra? And it's one that I heard many years ago and I used it in prison. I said, it costs nothing to smile and it makes you feel good. And I don't care how you feel, smile. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that releases the hormone in your body, the happy hormone, yeah. as well as training. And I believe that. So ex extreme times, try and remain happy and look on the positive. Definitely. Everybody, please pick up Kevin's book. Um, also follow his journey on Instagram. And if you're enjoying these episodes, please refer them to friends and family. Subscribe and be happy, never content. And once again, Kevin, yeah, thank, thank you very, you very much, much for your time. Thank you're you. a bit of gem. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.